0: This morning's scripture reading is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Again, Mark 2, 1 to 12. And when he returns to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'My son, your sins are forgiven.'" saying we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Why am I here? Is a question
1: we occasionally ask ourselves. Certain scenarios, right? Uh, We often are asked to be somewhere only to find out, upon getting there, that we're not really needed. Or worse, wanted. We uh, think some seminar, clinic, a free class might be of help only to have a wave of skepticism wash over us upon arrival on the scene. And you get there and you think to yourself, nope. (laughs) You've shown up somewhere so many times. It's become habit, tradition, part of your routine. For better or for worse. Such that everyone should probably occasionally ask themselves, because they've done it so many times, Wait a minute, why am I here? (laughs) Why am I really here again? It's fair to ask this about Sunday morning church gatherings, and in fact, ultimately, we will this morning. We will ask that question. We might also ask this after being uh, drawn somewhere by the thrill of a famous person uh, trekking to a famous landmark or experiencing some exciting event. Time has come for me to finally share this story this morning. Uh, I had one such exciting event for me happen in the fall of 2006. Two years after American West Coast rapper Warren G, that's right, this is happening, dropped his album Regulate, G-Funk era. You may know of his most famous single, Regulate, it was a clear black night, White Moon warned use was on the streets trying to consume. I could keep going, but that would just be more embarrassing. So, no, no, please, no applause. Um, so he dropped this album, and, and, and people from his financially homogeneous domestic sector, or hood, as some call it, began to uh, steal from him to try to steal from him and break into his house. And so he moved out of Compton, California, and he moved to a neighborhood next to my high school in these suburbs of Southern California. And so he was now 40 miles away, and poor Warren didn't know anyone. So for his housewarming party, he invited people that he thought were the most likely to attend in the area, and that was people from our high school and somehow, this included me. Now you don't get like an official invitation to these kinds of <laughs> these kinds of parties, but I was just have to trust me, officially invited. And our high school, I remember, was was a buzz. Those who were invited, as the uh, on the invite lists, were other members from the dog pound, Snoop, Dre, Tupac's ghost. That, at that time, <laughs> so your pastor, having been invited, rolled up to this party, and then rolled past it, because I finally sort of came to my senses and asked myself, "Why am I here? Why am I here?" Move on. Capernaum was a buzz because Jesus, the miracle worker and soul-rattling teacher, had returned. A big happening among all happenings. You remember last time they had seen Jesus? He was teaching. The whole city showed up at his door that night for healing and deliverance for what ailed them. Remember this? He woke, they woke up the next morning thinking they would find Jesus and poof! He was gone. But it was reported that he was back. It says your quote-unquote, after some days... And he was staying at the home of what was likely Peter or Peter's mother-in-law. This is a happening of the highest order with perhaps the most colorful cast of characters of any scene in the Gospels, this side of the transfiguration. And we find each character here for different reasons. So I thought it would be most helpful this morning if we took a look at the question of why am I here from the point of view of the five principal characters in the story. We'll take a longer look at two of them and we'll cover the first three very briefly. All right. Well, as brief as we can because the first character is Jesus and he's important. So we'll try to be as brief as possible. To the question of why am I here, Jesus answers this pretty directly through his actions. We've been saying that Jesus' priority on the mission's trip to planet Earth is kingdom expansion through gospel proclamation. Expanding his kingdom through proclaiming the good news about himself. And we hear this here. He was preaching the word to them. We see in verse two. And Mark, and ever in the interest of brevity, Rarely fills us in on the details because he knows that he already has. Jesus already told us in chapter 1, verse 15, the core of what Jesus is preaching here and elsewhere, to turn from the way you're living and trust Jesus. That someone is here who can forgive you from your rebellion and ultimately your death, eternal death and separation from God. And it helps us in an otherwise confusing moment in verse 5 to know that because in verse 5 says that Jesus sees their faith. Did you notice that? He sees the friend's faith, but he forgives the paralytic man specifically. Were you confused by that? Just very quickly, he says he sees their faith and he says to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of confusing. And I believe that in addition to caring about these men, this moment also affords Jesus a real-life sermon illustration. So he's saying, "Hey, you all have this disease called sin, and you need help. Turn to me, put your faith in me, and I can forgive you." And down from the roof drops a real-life sermon illustration. How great is that? This never happened in my sermons, so it would be great. Usually, there's just coughing and babies crying, and I don't know how to really connect that with the sermon. By faith, these friends have turned this man to Jesus. It's an opportunity for him to show this man and everyone around: yes, real, tangible faith like this is required for forgiveness. Just coming to me, turning to me, that's all that's required for forgiveness. Jesus goes on to affirm this priority. With his authority in verses 9-11 through 11 when he talks about how this is how you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise. So he confirms his a pro- a priority about the good news of forgiveness with his authority of healing this man. For Jesus, the more important and harder miracle is extending inward forgiveness but the authority to outwardly heal visibly confirms the inward miracle. Does that make sense? People can visibly, outwardly see Jesus' authority. They can't necessarily see the inward forgiveness and restoration that's gone on, so he gives them an outward picture of it. I'm going to heal this man. You see how I have authority over all things, including the ability to forgive people. This was the more important miracle. It was the harder miracle because it would take him ultimately to his death. To the question of why am I here? The scribes, they're the next character we see. The scribes of verse 6 can answer this pretty directly. These scribes were religious people. Very religious folks, Jewish folks, who were on a fact-finding mission about Jesus. That's why they're there. They're on a fact-finding mission about Jesus, and they quickly get their answer. Luke's account of this story in Luke 5 makes it very clear these men were not sort of these provincial representatives from the local village synagogue, but they were the heavy hitters from the religious centers, the big city, who were coming to examine. Okay, we've heard about this Jesus up in Galilee in backwater areas. Let's see what he's about. Let's ask some questions. Jesus gets to their biggest question when he says to the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Their response to Jesus' huge statement here is actually the correct one, strangely, and one everyone present should have been asking, which is how can a man forgive sins not directly committed against him? In other words, if you do something to offend me or are wrong towards me, I can forgive you, but I can't say to you, look, the sins of your life are forgiven. I forgive them. Only God can do that. And they rightly recognize that Jesus' claim is a divine claim. Ironically, these sins were committed directly against him because he is God or he's guilty of blasphemy, which is what they say, right? They go straight to the latter conclusion. And in darting to this conclusion so quickly, they chart an irreversible course towards opposition towards Jesus and ultimately murder of Jesus. This is where it begins. Blasphemy. To the question of why am I here, the friends of the paralytic man, here's a third character, can answer fairly directly as well. They are determined together that nothing would get in the way of bringing their suffering friend to Jesus. Even if it meant, even if it meant the unplanned addition of a sunroof to this house, and in doing so raining a shower of dirt on the crowd below, Embarrassing for everyone, humiliating maybe for Jesus. But they were determined nothing would get in their way. So, fairly straightforward. Here to bring the good news. Here to find out about Jesus. Get some facts together to present other religious people. who have a vested interest in this. And finally, nothing get in the way of us bringing our friend to Jesus. The question of why am I here is certainly, though, more complex for our other two principal characters, the paralytic man and the crowd. In fact, Mark's final verse, in verse 12, addresses the response of both of these two characters, if you notice. And for us, as complex human beings who bring to any experience, including being at church, trying to hear about Jesus so much personality and history and experience at the table, and let's just say a baggage as well, it'd be easy to miss the -the straight-to-the-point reason of why we are here, why God has led us here, even today, Sunday, in this church. I think we can learn something from these two characters who almost miss the reason why they're here. First, why am I here from the paralytic's point of view? The most obvious answer for the paralyzed man is because I can't move my legs, right? And yet still, commentators disagree as to whether this is the only reason why this man's here. Second possibility is because of my friends. I'm here because of my friends. And this is very possible because these men likely came along. It's possible they persisted in trying to convince him And the paralytic agreed to go with him. At best, reluctantly. Okay, I'll come along. Here's a man who almost certainly had many entreaties to say, look, you can be healed if you'd only follow God. If you'd only repent from your sin. You can be healed. There's a guy. There's a prophet who's coming to town. He can heal you. There's a pool you can go to, which happened around Jesus' time also for people in the pool of Siloam. You can... Visit this pool, it'll heal you. Experiencing disappointment, skepticism. Remember, Jesus sees their faith, not his. Although he will get his chance to show faith by the end of our story, and does. At this point, Jesus does not see faith in this man, or else he'd said so, as he does elsewhere, of people who come to him. And he says, your faith has healed you. The third Possibilities. He's come because of some deeper spiritual need. One commentator I read vigorously argues this idea, although in the end it's just conjecture. We don't know if he senses there's something deeper or not. There's likely disagreement about why the paralytic has come here because it's likely mixed motives with a dash of unbelief. I mean, think about it. If you were in this situation, as you're being lowered into the faces of all who have passed by you on the way to work or on the way home from work in their lunch hours. Children who've passed you by, tried to avoid you, avoid eye contact. Very well, I thought, why am I here? I'm being lowered from a roof in the presence of all these people who have passed me by thousands of times in my life. So I would summarize it like this. I think leaves room for all these things. I know I'm here because I know that my life needs changing, but I'm not exactly sure why. Perhaps that describes you also. You're not entirely sure why you're here today, listening in about Jesus. Perhaps some friends or a friend brought you to hear to be brought in the presence of Jesus, and reluctantly you agreed to come. Perhaps now you come most Sundays and increasingly you recognize your life isn't what it's supposed to be and that needs addressing. Like the paralytic man, you see people surrounding you, present to hear what Jesus has to say and think, you know, I I know my life needs changing, but I'm not sure why. What's at the root of it all? Why is this man here? Jesus tells him. He makes it plain what we cannot grasp in his first words of this paralytic, saying, son, your sins, your sins, they're forgiven. And it must have surprised the man who thought his frail legs would get most of the attention from Jesus. And it still surprises us today. I think because while it's the most important and glaring ailment in God's eyes, and to those who know us best, like, yeah, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're, you have things you do. We resist it because it's the last thing we wish to hear. We'll bring to Jesus our financial troubles, conflict at work, general tiredness, even physical sickness, but rarely our specific rebellion the Bible calls sin. Last week, I quoted a 20th century apologist, Malcolm Muggeridge. I told a story about him too, which he illustrates his realization of this fact in his own life. But he says, the depravity of man, by depravity of man, he means the disease in us that affects all of who we are, the disease of rebellion, that we tend toward wanting to say no to God. He says, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. You can look around and say, yes, there is a problem with everyone in all humanity. And all of us experience at some point surprise, as I mentioned last week, of, wow, I did not know I was capable of that. Why do we resist with all our mind and might to come to Jesus with what ails us most? Our sin. This rebellion, this offense towards him. Number one, we secretly love sin. We just don't call it that, right? No one says, hey, oh man, yeah, I'm really looking forward to Friday. I'm just gonna go send in after work. And nobody says that, I don't think. The Bible has a specific name for it, called idolatry. It's anything we look to above God or in place of God for pleasure, for fulfillment. For satisfaction, or for a sense of identity—that's the first thing we secretly love sin. But secondly, we've been blame-shifting since the Garden of Eden. We've been blame-shifting. In the Garden, after he first falls, God asks man, asks man about it. Did you did you violate the one thing I told you not to do? And he says, "Well, the woman made me do it. It's her fault." Still do this today. There's some other fault for which I need God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, His church, other than specific rebellion, specific idolatry, other than my kids who I live vicariously through, other than some type of addiction in our lives that's taken hold of us, other than my work, which I use to fulfill me and give me pleasure, give me a sense of identity and satisfaction. It's not those things we blame other things? Practically, we know this. When someone else asks you why do you go to church, do you ever say, man, I just need relief from my persistent rebellion. <laughs> I just need to be with God's people, worship God together, and be like, oh man, here's my rebellion, Jesus. When asked to share a prayer request, how often do you mention your struggle with a sin or a specific weakness in your life? Right? Aunt Edna's hip right let's pray for that i mean like, like my difficulty at work i'm i'm struggling i'm i'm tired i'm worried i might sin how many modern praise songs mention sin now we're going to have that this morning afterwards <laughs> that's kind of intentional right i praising worship this way but i was on a day of errands this week and i think it was like worship wednesdays on 95.5 great radio station i got to be careful here we're actually on the radio station there on Sunday mornings. We have a sunrise Sunday thing. We have little ads for whatever. It's great. I'm not blaming 95.5. Pam Norton's general manager there. She's great. She doesn't have. She has no responsibility for what's actually the program that's on there. So it's okay. But it like, I think it's called like Worship Wednesdays, something like that. But anyway, modern worship songs. Just as an experiment, I was running there, and so I turned it on just to listen out for one mention of sin, just one as a reason we need Jesus, The reason we need to come to God. Not one time! I'm not even kidding you. I I don't know how many songs. Maybe it was just six to eight, something of that nature. Not one. Why? We don't want to mention that as a need for Jesus. There's one pastor in America who notoriously refuses to even mention what he calls the unnecessary and ugly word sin, and not surprisingly, he shepherds the largest church in America. Hmm, wonder why people don't want to think about their sin, their rebellion. Even now, I know there's some who love Sunrise Community Church, and, and, and they're thinking about the visitors here, and they're wondering, when am I going to move on past sin? Right, you're thinking that right now. You're like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I get it. <laughs> move on to part two, the happy ending. Right? I'm kind of feeling that. We have to, we have to linger here a little bit. We have to linger because the Bible describes sin in the most serious human terms possible because it is the most serious problem we have before a perfect and holy God. Listen to the way the Bible describes sin. It's to, the sin is to do violence against, Daniel eleven thirty two 32, Isaiah 24, 5. It's to trespass one's property, Romans 5, 15 through 20. It's to rob. Malachi 1, Romans 2.2, is to permanently stain, which was the most serious issue to my mom and her carpet. I remember when I was a kid. Jeremiah 2.22, it is to prostitute oneself while married. Why? Not just prostitute oneself, prostitute oneself while married. The entire book of Hosea. God is trying to make clear in human terms how serious this is. What do we get here? We get physical harm, proprietal harm, financial harm, permanent harm, emotional, marital, sacred harm. Prostitution while married, there's a whole book about it. To make the point, this is how we treat God. Close point one, two. You might confidently say, friends, I believe in Jesus. Do you possess the same confidence in your sin? Are you willing to accept today that the first link between you and Jesus isn't a vague need or spiritual fulfillment, but real and specific sin? That's the first link. We have to start there. Thankfully, there's good news in point two. Second, last character. Why am I here from the crowd's point of view? The very beginning, and very end of our story, we read about the crowd, right? Verse two. Read with me there. Many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And we see it again, verse 12, the crowd. After the paralytic man rose and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all showing his faith, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Like the leprous man at the end of chapter 1. For this, glory to God and amazement, sounds like the right response. But it isn't, because they are not amazed by grace. Remember that old song, Amazing Grace? They're not amazed by the root of grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Crowds play an important role in Mark's gospel. In fact, Mark testifies to Jesus' popularity By referring to crowds nearly 40 times before chapter 10. Before we get to Mark 10, 40 times talks about crowds, crowds, crowds. Crowds form helpful context for Jesus' teachings, right? You need a crowd. And they're the object of Jesus' genuine compassion. But Mark never, never depicts crowds turning to Jesus. Turning from sin to Jesus and trusting him never happens at best crowds walk away temporarily amazed but unchanged and ambivalent at worst opposition to jesus but maybe they do change we don't know Ryan. Right? ever patient jesus reserves the right to judge in the end and he does later in his ministry, Jesus says of this city crowd in Matthew eleven twenty three through 24, look at this. And you, Capernaum, you, Capernaum, this is where he is, right? This is the crowd. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. Sodom, that's right, the same Sodom. That one. If that had happened there, I tell you, it would have been more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In other words, they would have noticed Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. You missed it. The paralytic man almost missed while he was there. Sin separated him from his God. Missed by Capernaum was the mightiest work of all. forgiveness that restored a man to his God. They missed it. They walked away. Have you ever seen anything like this? You missed what the big this was. One of the challenges of reading and trying to apply the Bible is connecting times then to times now. I think one of the principal questions we can ask is, what about us? Do we walk away from an encounter with Jesus amazed, encouraged, feeling good about God, but miss the main reason why he's brought us here? In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, I think, sort of prophetically describes the state of most attending church. He said this, we want in God not so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. Right A God who's, who said, "If anything we happen to like doing, oh, what does it matter so long as they are happy?" Those kids. Here's a worthers. Right? Why? Because a father chastens, he disciplines for sin to bring us back into his loving arms. We want God to, by and large, only come and visit when we want a lollipop. Here's a dollar kid. That's my concern. Or relating to God as therapist, not healer. Enough to help me talk things through, but don't change my life. Or relate to God as safety net when needed, not rescuer. Only intervene in my life, God, when I really need it. Don't we get all up in my business. I am afraid of this. We stand under the threat of imminent punishment and death. One man has stood for to take the punishment we deserve so you might be forgiven, be transformed to forgive others. And that's the good news. I wish I could tell you more this morning. We're going to keep talking about it, but that is the good news. This is Jesus. There were always prophets who performed miracles. That's the interesting thing about this story. All of these people had seen prophets or heard of prophets who performed miracles. There were always prophets who performed miracles. There will always be testimonies of healing and answers to prayer in churches. There will always be miraculous stories you can watch on YouTube. You like, hey, watch this with me. There will always be rumors from far abroad, of even resurrections from the dead, but only one who can forgive and transform lives with his forgiveness. There's only one. And it's still the most precious of all miracles. Think about it. How often do you hear about that anymore? Jesus chose to leave behind the church as the most visible representation of himself. And I recognize while some of you may have encountered sunrise through maybe outreach, service, maybe very few of you through your, a community group. Someone invited you into a small group and that's how you kind of got involved. Most of you make a, your strongest first connection through Sunday morning, through our worship service. And when asked why they are here at SEC, what, what I most often hear it's what they like about our church, what you may like about our church. The majority of folks kindly say, just a quick summary, you know, Ryan opens up the Bible. I see that it applies to my life. Plus, he doesn't point at me or yell at me, all right? When the praise team plays, you can really feel something, sense the Spirit. You know God is there. Good. People are pretty genuine, real, welcoming. I can wear sandals. I don't feel judged. That's a good point. We cannot stay there and be a church that honors Jesus Christ. We must recognize with increasing specificity why we are really here. The paralytic man almost missed why he was here. The crowd oohed and ah, but they did not miss it. In a nutshell, don't miss specifically why you are here today. You have a disease called sin which requires the healing forgiveness of Jesus. Every week, we gather to ultimately hold out this truth so that those curious can learn about it, so that those ready can embrace it, so that those who come each week knowing they need it can reapply the balm of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Please, I plead with you, do embrace this diagnosis of sin, but also the prescription of Jesus' forgiveness, if you haven't already. If you have already, close with this. I want to encourage you, contribute to your church the greater miracle of being real with others about your sin, your idolatry, your weakness, or the further extension of forgiveness. You hear that? The only way we can extend forgiveness through Jesus in our lives and relationships is if we get real about our real specific sin, idolatry, and weakness with other people. That's the only way it's going to happen, friends. Within Sunrise, I've heard more answers to prayer, more decisions to serve, even more healings, and I've heard others verbally and consciously say, I forgive you, or Jesus forgives you. There is a risk. Risk about being open about sin, weakness, idolatry, and not hear from a human being, oh yeah, I forgive you, or Jesus forgives you. Likewise, the risk to to say I forgive you or even Jesus forgives you entails stinging the other person. Putting your finger on their wound, even if just for an instant, to call out their wrongdoing for what it really is and sin. You might come across holier than thou, condescending. You risk putting distance between you and them. Consider though the potential benefit which is sin is treated more seriously because it gets out in the open more. It's exposed more, so you and I blush more. And the sweetness of, the need for the reality of forgiveness increases side by side. That's what forgiveness does. Where sin abounds, where sin's admitted, where sin is moved in the open, grace abounds all the more. So, I'm going to conclude today. Let's just start... By getting it out in the open. Say it with me. Ready? It's up on the screen for you. I am a sinner. But let me be the first to remind you if you trust Jesus, my friend, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we may have come this morning for all kinds of reasons, but Jesus, you know why you have really brought us here. Ultimately, we have this disease called sin, and it's affecting every part of our life. And yet, in your graciousness, in your mercy, you came down, lived the life we couldn't live, and died the death we deserve, so we might be forgiven—not only now, but for healed. Help us be ashamed of our sin, but help us not be scared to admit we've sinned, where we're weak, what's an idol in our life, so that we might together experience and speak about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.